Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. First hour of general discussion about just about everything around digital media production. And the second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have Per Salbark and Per Larson from Kilohertz on for the second hour. And they make a pro program called Phase Plant. And it's a crazy app. Like it's just a crazy app. I saw I saw it about a year and a half ago, and I was like, we have to get these guys on to show what this thing does and how it works. I barely understand it. Uh, it's really cool. So anyway, so uh, Faceplant, it's a synthesizer. Well, I don't know what you know, DSP synthesizer sound creator. Um, so that's coming on in the second hour. So stay tuned for that. Um, and if you have questions, uh, go ahead and throw them into Makana right now. Uh, we've got a great panel here. Mickey is joining us. So you know that if you have technical uh, film or or audio questions, uh, Mickey's going to be um, able to answer those, we think. <laughs> so anyway, so not, no pressure, no pressure. Um, anyway, so but go ahead and ask those questions if you if you uh, if you care to. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Jason, what do we have? First one is from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. He writes in, I'm looking for playout software for a small stadium video board. I need quick playback, output to deck link, and to input at least one live source. Most inputs are short video loops or still images, preferably PC. I'm looking at Playdeck and QLab. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I don't know if I can speak uh, highly enough of uh, QLab, especially for this use case. Um, you can, of course, uh, bring in your your videos and your stills for playout, uh, and um, but you can also bring in your live sources from the DeckLink or via NDI for um, for putting out to your destination as well. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Uh, if you end up with a Mac, MIDI can't be beat. That's M I T T I. Yeah, and and on a Mac, the, I mean the big three that I would consider are QLab, Softron, and and MIDI. Uh, MIDI is probably the least expensive, and Softron is probably the most expensive of those of that bunch. Uh, you know, on the PC, I actually don't know as many of the playback options that that might be available there. Um, you know, a lot of people that I know that are doing this kind of thing are using the the playback options within VMix or within OBS or within TriCasters, and so I think that that market may not be quite as as developed. But um, there's there's definitely more expensive ones like Watch Out um, that that can play out those things, and so there's you know uh, Resolume, I believe, will play do play out Arena um, as well as you know there's so there are higher you know, much more expensive options, but as far as cost-effective, under a thousand dollars, I'm not not sure how many options there are. Next question: Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California, writes in: What are some systematic steps for tuning a room for both live sound reinforcement (PA) and live stream? Note: Not talking about mixing a room. Yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, um, uh, I, I'm assuming you're talking more uh, about more more towards um, room treatment as opposed to. Um, uh, room isolation or um, or soundproofing, uh, you would want to start by measuring the uh, the room modes and nulls of your of your room, like what frequencies resonate within the room and that tend to build up at specific uh, areas of the room, and also what frequencies get to uh, tend to get canceled out because of how the geometry of the room is. Um, and also measure out the RT60. RT60 is uh, the, the time it takes for uh, reverberation in the room to uh, lower down by 60 dB. Um, those would be your guiding. Uh, those would be your guides in uh, how to treat the room. And um, if you are not familiar with it, like I would highly recommend, like 
uh, hiring a uh, an acoustics engineer to help you figure this out and also treat the room appropriately. Because if you're not treating the specific issues, then uh, your uh, investments in treating the room would be uh, for not the uh, not put to good use. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, tuning a room is very important to having a good measurement system, a good FFT, uh, uh, the microphone, an RTA type style microphone that will allow you, especially if you're bringing in the PA for that type of thing. Uh, if it's if you're tuning or for a like an amphitheater and, and the sound's going to be uh, always there, and you got a sound guy there, then they'll have all those little specifics. But you also have to tune in two different ways. You have to tune for an empty room, and then you have to tune with a full room because people change how things sound inside of any room whatsoever. As for the live streaming side, you don't have, really don't have to tune anything because if you're taking any sound from the room, then the sound guy is, you're usually taking the tune that they're setting up uh, through like a cross mic or anything like that. Go, Bill. Yeah, I had the same process uh, that's been described before. We used to do it by taking a measurement mic as opposed to any kind of a, a vocal mic that you'd use in a performance and put it at the point where your listening person is going to be. For a small thing like we're doing here on Zoom, you'd put it as close to where your ears are as possible and then run a frequency sweep across it and see if anything builds up or is diminished based on reflections from that space. That is an entirely different thing. And this has been said before than tuning a concert hall or something like that. Uh, that is much more complex because obviously people are sitting in all sorts of different places and a perfect sound at the, at the focus in the middle may not be great on the outsides. Or if you're sitting too near the subwoofer or too near a speaker stack, it's all going to be messed up a little bit. So it's, it's a complicated thing. Yeah, if you're getting serious about it, you definitely want to bring a professional in. Um, otherwise, you know, there's definitely a lot of measurement tools that you can use on your own for smaller rooms. But if you're looking into larger infrastructure, you really need to have somebody that has the proper tools and knows how to use them. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, um, and just to, for uh, reference, like in terms of what I mentioned earlier, RT60, um, a a recording studio control room or even some uh, better sounding TV studios uh, would typically have an RT60 of uh, 200 milliseconds and maybe a maximum of 500 milliseconds. Uh, but there is and, a, and Can you just, define that RT60 again? Is that the re, the, the reflection uh, how of sound? Long it takes, how long it takes for the reverberation within a room to be diminished by 60 dB. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, a, a recording studio would be like in the 200, 300 millisecond range. But uh, just knowing that it was uh, Tim that's asking... Some houses of worships are designed specifically to have the uh, sound propagate all the way from the front to the rear of the uh, house of worship without any amplification. So they're designed with um, with reverberation in mind and wanting that reverberation. So those types of uh, venues would have RT60s up to like, I don't know, 10 seconds or even more. That's great. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana writes in, what is the best way to have a full PDF of iMessages from a person timestamp showing for proceeding? Go ahead, Jason. Um, okay, full disclaimer, not a lawyer, but I've been an expert witness a time or two. Uh, my understanding 
of this is that anything with an affidavit uh, will work. Uh, you know, anything that is, is provable is the person attesting that is them. But um, iMazing.app is far and away the easiest way to do this. Next question. Uh, there it is. Uh, Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California writes in, Coach me when mixing in a dual environment, live sound and live stream, what are a few special things to keep in mind? Go ahead, Mickey. Oh, yeah, there's so many differences uh, between um, mixing for front of house and mixing for broadcast. Um, one thing, a couple of things to keep in mind is uh, you would certainly want to mix uh, separately for your broadcast mix from uh, from what your front of house uh, PA is putting out. Um, a lot of systems engineers and also uh, mix engineers uh, apply uh, a response curve to their PA system and a lot of times um, this has a significant uh, bump in the response on the low end of things. So if you're monitoring, if you're putting out your front of house mix directly to your broadcast, um, you would certainly have, um, you, you could have, uh, say, if you think it sounds like nice and full and like bassy in the room, uh, it might actually come out very thin in the broadcast uh, because of that curve. So you uh, monitor your broadcast mix uh, separately. Um, the dynamic range for um, for uh, a front of house mix is much much larger, typically much much larger than what you would want for broadcast. Like, uh, it, say, thinking of it in a digital meter scale, for front of house you would typically have like you know some speech in the again in, in on a digital meter at minus 40 and then suddenly have music rise up to like minus uh, 15 db dbfs um so you have such a large uh, dynamic range there then typically for a broadcast that would be clamped down and uh dynamically compressed uh much more and uh some platforms even have very very strict especially like threshold broadcast tv or cable tv have very strict targets that you need to hit for your broadcast loudness. Um, so your signals would be a lot more uh, compressed and usually a lot louder and broadcast. And one thing that uh, might be a, just a personal observation is I think for broadcast, the uh, acceptable noise floor is much uh, stricter. People, people hear the noise more during broadcast, especially because of that. I mentioned earlier uh, dynamic range compression and so the noise floor is brought higher in the mix relatively spe speaking uh, in terms of uh, when you compare it to the other elements while in the front of house mix uh, you have a PA system that is much further away people are hearing the rest of the noise in the venue um, things are much stricter when it comes to broadcast yeah, and the physics are just so much different, more different in a venue than they are in a, you know, in the stream, in someone's headphones or even in their speakers. One of the big problems we have is that if so, if you mix, like, let's say, a band or something that is that sounds good, as, as Mickey was talking about, the voice is going to sound way out in front if in the stream if you take the straight straight piece. So you really have to have somebody else paying attention to it. A lot of times, we use submixes, and sometimes we have a separate operator in the same mixer with like an X X touch. Um, that is just listening. They're taking what the main mixer is doing. They have an X-Touch sitting next to it, and they're listening to what's going out to the stream and making the fine adjustments that are necessary to, to you know, for generally the stems, not generally every channel, to kind of pull all those things back together. Now, go ahead, Jeffrey. 
So yeah, with uh, with live streaming, the one thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that the the live stream, the person that's running the live stream sound is way the heck away from the the sound uh, board. I always like to put. Uh, I always like to be where the uh, monitor person is because it's usually uh, in behind the speakers. So in a in a very reverberant room, this is probably the best place where you're going to get the least amount of sound, so you can hear what's going on inside of there. If you are doing live sound and, and live streaming at the same time, that, that's you're juggling way too many balls, and it's going to be really tough. If you have to be at the soundboard. To do any type of live streaming, then you might want to try and crawl underneath that soundboard to try to to uh, to get mm -hmm. rid of any of the amplified sound. And uh, sometimes I, I do like to put up the uh, cross uh, the XY microphone and then get that so I can mix between a, a, a little bit of board and a little bit of of what the sound guy is projecting on the so they can have that live concert experience. And go ahead, Bill. Yeah, this is very complicated, as everybody has been speaking to. In the old days, when I used to do it, I only had to worry about live sound versus the recording that was going to be done in post. Now with live streaming, you have the third aspect of it. It's got to be live for the audience. It's got to be live for the streaming uh, listeners or watchers. And most people want to capture that. The only thing that saved me was always doing channel inserts off the board to a multi-track recorder so that I could completely separately mix whatever post-production content I was going to do because I never got even the first and the second right at the same time in real time. I always had to go back in and shape the sound on the recording to be its best. And that wasn't always the same as the music recording for the or the music produ production for the house and any streaming that you're doing in real time, trying to get exactly right. Good, Mickey. Yeah. Um, just to add to what Alex mentioned uh, earlier uh, about the mixing the broadcast mix on the same board, like tip typically you would want to aim for having a totally separate uh, broadcast board so that uh, you don't have to share, say, your, your processors, your, your effects engines with what front of, front of house needs. But um, aside from, if, if you're mixing on the broadcast on the same board, aside from using sends, say if you have a 64-channel board, but you're only using 32 channels of it, and it's a digital mixer, you can assign the same inputs to another set of 32 channels and uh, create your broadcast mixer, and you can have your own EQ dynamics um, configured for your broadcast uh, channels. And uh, a lot of people do that. Yeah. And if you are taking it from a live board, uh, just be careful if, if, if we found that unless you have time to really set it up, uh, the, the, the temptation will be to use Maddie or Dante and just be careful of clocking issues. Um, a lot of times we want to do some kind of analog pipe uh, to, to get through those uh, if we're doing a separate a, a separate mixer or we need a lot of time um, to really tune and make sure that the clocking issues aren't, aren't, a, aren't a problem for both Maddie and, and, uh, um, and for Dante. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York writes in, Morning, everyone. Is the X32 rack the best rack-mounted mixer available in the sub-4K range with Dante and Automix capabilities? If not, what would the panel recommend? Thanks. Go ahead, Mickey. Um, specifically with Automix capabilities, yeah, I think the X32 rack is um, uh, the best bang for the buck. Um, though uh, there are other ways to add Automix capabilities to your system, aside from having it built into the, the board. Um, also, uh, it, it kind of depends what is meant by better. Um, 
the although I haven't had my hands on the the Yamaha DM3, like I I I would wager that the preamps are a lot um, cleaner, at least like with higher gain situations uh, than the X32. And also, um, again, if if uh, if you're open to having uh, automix capabilities done on an external processor, there are also many um, analog boards that, uh, and if also analog, if analog boards work, work with your workflow, that's another option as well. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, when, when it comes to rack mounting, that's not much, not much option there. But uh, yeah, when I saw the Yamaha DM3 at uh, NAMM, I was pretty impressed. They have uh, a couple different models, so their base model does come in at about $4,000. Uh, or I'm sorry, no, uh, $2,000, excuse me. Uh, Ellen and Heath, uh, they have some pretty impressive boards. I, I know that their SQ5 also does Dante, and that hits about the $4,000 level. The new Tascams are going to start at the $6,000 level, but once again, these are not rack-mounted at this at this point. You you have console boards at that at that's at that point. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I overlooked the the uh, rack-mounted part. Um, the M32 I thought was retailing right at the 4K mark. Yeah, but yeah, if you're looking, I feel like at rack mounted, the two big ones are the TF line and the X32 line under $4,000. Uh, and the TF doesn't have, again, as Mickey said, you can find outboard, but a lot of times those automixes outboard is going to cost more money. So, um, you know, so you have to, if you're trying to fit that in, um, I, we've been really happy with the X32. We, we were really excited about possibly getting a TF and then it didn't have automix. <laughs> Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand writes in, thoughts on Behringer's new 4LFO Eurorack module. Sounds awesome. He included a YouTube link. You know, I, have, I haven't been able to, it, this must be just a, a brand new release. I, I'm always interested. I have, I have a lot of Behringer. Uh, this is, it's where you all, it's, they're kind of like the, the toy, the toy synthesizers <laughs> that you get to play with uh, a little bit. Um, and so, but it's really cool to see them come out with these. I don't think anybody here has had any experience with them yet, but uh, we'll, we'll maybe see if we can uh, take a closer look uh, a little later. Next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada writes in, uh, Audinate has a new pricing option for Dante Virtual Sound Card that allows transferring the license between computers. It's almost double the price. Upgrading an existing license is the same $30 difference. Thought? Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I when, when, they, um, when they made the announcement last week, uh, I, I found the pricing very interesting. Like, at that price, I'd rather get another li like license at the... Um, yeah. at the 49 or 50 US dollar price. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I agree. It was a bit of a slap in the face. It's like, uh, yeah, don't act like you've never like revoked a license for me because I emailed you. <laughs> uh, next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, iOS 17 isn't even announced yet, but today Apple previewed an accessibility feature that allows users at risk of losing the ability to speak to create a voice that sounds like them in 15 minutes. Big deal? Good, Jeffrey. And it's it's pretty decent. It, it's nice because then you can you can sit there and you can start typing stuff in, and then uh, and have the phone uh, uh, convey what you're what you're saying. And uh, so if they can get it to work, fifteen minutes seems to be a little bit low on the uh, getting the the process uh, because you got there's so many different inflections. You know, I could say like for instance when I 
when I do my uh, videos, every now and then I'll have a point where I say something and it sounds all garbled and I'll try and pull it from the earlier part of the video and it just never really fits into place. So you'll have a lot of choppiness on that. But uh, for the most part, it's, an, it's a nice little feature uh, if you want people, because, you know, we saw, had when Roger Ebert had his uh, vocal cords taken out, uh, they when they recreated that, it was, you know, a lot of people were really excited on that. Of course, you also have the whole idea of somebody trying to uh, scam or, or deep fake you out of there. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I think if as long as it can stay in the phone, as long as there's security involved in that, I think it's a great feature. Go ahead, Arshid. I think accessibility-wise, it's giving a lot of uh, people the tools that they need to be able to function in society. So definitely think that this is a good move that they're made. Uh, we have members that sometimes have speech impediments or whatnot. And, you know, with that said, this is definitely a good tool to uh, uh, help that. And then I know that they're coming out with other features. There's a little article. So if you go to Apple's page or our Discord, you could read up more about it. Go ahead, uh, Bill. I'm fascinated with this in terms of the fact that they must have some sort of script that uh, you read through in your voice that gives them every single combination of sounds, phenomes, whatever, in order to then be able to draw from that repository and recreate your voice. I just think that would be fascinating to look at what the what the read this into the system and then we'll have your voice forever consists of probably a lot of things I had never thought about before. Yeah, the. Uh I, as soon as I, I think we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and I definitely talked about it on Mac Break. That I, I wanted the two-hour version. Like, if I can do, if I can do something with a voice in fifteen minutes, what happens if I feed you two hours or twenty hours or two hundred hours? If I thought I was actually going to lose my voice, I would want to model it completely, you know, and have it and and do a whole bunch of different things. And so I hope that they expand what it does so that you can really capture a full resonance and character of someone's voice. Uh, and, and I think that that may be probably, I'm guessing this is the first step down that path. Also, a lot of things that start out as accessibility also become oftentimes wider features. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is the possibility, if you're going iPhone to iPhone with iMessages, of when you have it read out it, you're driving and it's, it's reading those, it could be reading them in the other person's voice. Like, so if Bill sends something, it sounds like Bill. If, if Mickey sends, it sounds like Mickey. If, if Jason sends, it sounds like Jason. I think that's where we're going to see this go. They're going to start it with accessibility because it's a safe place to work and it, it it makes it a bigger impact there. But I think that a year or two years from now, it'll start reading out. If you choose to, it'll start reading your iMessages out in your voice to other people. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting um it could be really interesting. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, and and both good and bad, but I think I think mostly good. And go ahead, Bill. To your point though, does that mean you're going to have to go through and do a bunch of passes? I want a happy read i want a angry read i want a <laughs> all these tonalities you'll, that you'll we use in human emojis. speech you'll have to have emojis yeah. that, 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 that that it's like audio emojis angry you know read angry scowling paragraph <laughs> yeah scowling paragraph. yeah exactly <laughs> but it doesn't do that now it's just it's just kind of neutral if it reads it out uh next yeah. next question Tony Mobley writes in from Noonan, Georgia. I have a friend who has an online business, which is primarily in Zoom. She's a MacBook Pro and needs lights, which can be mobile. Please share links and suggestions. Go ahead, Bill. Doing lighting for a situation you don't understand is always hard. But here's some, some things I will say. There are broad categories of lights which are very useful. Um, 
big sources and and it can be physically or you can take a small bright source and put it in some kind of modifier to make it large are something that are very useful both in close-up work like the kind of stuff we're doing now where you have you want a soft light to hit your face and be kind of flattering but also in terms of you go into a relatively large space and you want something bright enough to fill that space so that's probably where i'd start some sort of reasonably bright small source that can be put into a diffuser to make it big and it can be done a bunch of ways but that's one of the first tools i would replace if i all my lighting gear went away then after that the next thing you're looking for is control modifiers and that is things like flags or barn doors or things that can get light off of something so that you concentrate the light where you want it to go that is only good if you're working with like a specific single person or something like that as the number of people that you need to have light for increases you're you're falling back to that broad fill to get everybody's light level up enough so they can be exposed property properly excuse me and then as you get more refined you want to create mood and shadow and depth and things and that requires even more gear but that's where i'd start i'd start with a couple of pretty bright portable battery operated and, and we're lucky because in the led area that's that's era that's much easier to achieve than it used to be when i was starting in lighting uh and then you're gonna just get more efficient and better as you go along go ahead, mickey and specifically uh, with regards to fixtures, um, since 2020, I've been using a bunch of uh, uh, Nanlite LumiPad 11s and LumiPad uh, 25 units, uh, and also uh, Pavo tubes, the short Pavo tubes. Uh, they've, they're very portable. And in terms of um, what Bill mentioned earlier about diffusing the light, I've been known in the past to use creative ways of diffusing lights with um <laughs> with things like uh bed sheets curtains like like when i when i uh when i went out of the country in 2021 like i used i used bed sheets in the hotel room and curtains and also uh like uh covers of uh white translucent covers of plastic crates as diffusion <laughs> good jason uh, I had a client who, had, who was in exactly this situation, and I found something that she really ended up liking. Rolling Square is a Swiss company that, um, that makes this super thin piece that, that you can like kind of roll off of the back of your MacBook, and it doubles as, a, as, an air, um, as a charger for your iPhone, so you can use your iPhone as a, as a camera. Uh, I'll put the link in the chat, but it, it features also a 280 lumen bulb. You can get two of these on either side and for something like a webcam when portability is, uh, well, and in this case, cuteness is, is prime, then um, kind of can't beat this for 70 bucks. Yeah, I, I um, all of our mini kits all have the Pavo tube six C's. Um, those are the, the small tubes that Mickey was talking about. They're about, about a foot long or maybe a little less. I have four of them in my bag because I'm leaving right after the show for Washington, D.C. So, so I have four of them, and that's what I use. Uh, and so um, they've got a quarter 20 on both ends. Um, they run on battery as well as um, USB-C power, although you have to plug the USB-C into a USB-A power source. If it gets a USB-C power source, it stops charging. Um, so, so it's a little tricky there. Um, but uh, so th those are the only things, but I use them all the, every time I leave the, the office. I've experimented with lots of different lights and just kind of settled in on those. I take four of them. I have two of them that I can light my background with and two of them that I light myself with. And they've worked really well that way. Next question. 
James Folson in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, just purchased a stream deck for the rotary encoders to more precisely control multiple parameters like color page and resolve or a filter and cue and audio programs. How do I best set these up? Go ahead, Jeffrey. That's a, that's a really good question because I don't think anybody's really focused on how the dials work on these things. Like for instance, uh, you know, if you have something like the Shuttle Pro, where you have this dial, it's it's you you know you can really get it down to the brass tacks and 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 push something to the right uh, point. Uh, but those dials, they're they're really uh, it was basically meant for volume up, volume down type stuff. If you need to get very precise on that, uh, I'm wondering if the if those dials are actually going to do that. Uh, and I'll definitely uh, check that out and see if there's anything. Uh, any uh, issues that you, that would come to using this in a uh, precision type move? I'm going to save you a lot of time. SideshowEffects.net. So SideshowEffects.net is where you you can get a profile pre-built for Resolve. That's what I use with. That's the number one way I use my um, my Stream Deck with the with the dials is in Resolve. And they've already built it all for you. They've got it set up. It's better than anything I would have designed. It works perfectly, and it's like, I don't know, $30, $40. It's worth it. Um, they make a bunch of them for Final Cut and other other apps as well. There's lots and lots of apps. they built. That's, what, that's all they do is build, well, as far as I know, it's all they do is build Stream Deck profiles uh, for pro apps. And so I would, Sideshow FX is the one that I would recommend. Uh, next question. Yeah, big plus one on that one. Uh, Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in, how many USB mics can you run on a Zoom session or podcast at the same time? And how do you do it? Go ahead, Mickey. You can use tools like uh, Loopback to bring all the USB mic uh, channels into a single virtual audio um, interface and use that to route uh, the signals into your DAW or Zoom. Though, uh, if there are situations, if, it, if the situation um, allows for audio to bleed between microphones, I would definitely not, I would recommend against it uh, because... Uh, if the uh, analog to digital converters are not uh, word clocked together um, and you get bleed within between the microphones, you will hear what would uh, appear to be like echo because the uh, the uh, samples are not being generated at the exact same point in time. And a lot of times we've used, I mean, we've definitely used a lot of mics, a lot of USB mics together um, in those areas. And high off-axis rejection is really important in general, um, but more so if you're doing a, a bunch of uh, sources. Quick reminder that if you uh, have, we've got a great panel here answering a lot of great questions, especially audio. Today, of course, is our audio day. So if you have uh, audio questions, you've seen a lot of audio questions pop up here. But if you've got audio questions, this is a perfect day to ask them. Um, and uh, so go ahead and throw those questions in. We've still got another half an hour uh, left in our uh, first hour, which is general discussion. And then, uh, of course, if you uh, do a little research while you're listening to us and, and check out Kilo Hearts and you start to build up some questions there, uh, go ahead and throw those in as well. Let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, failure is a part of any profession, but have you ever had to alert management that something is an incident waiting to happen? How do you do that diplomatically? Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I, I think all the time. I think it's a part of uh, um, almost any job, like making people uh, making people aware um, about the specific aspects of your entity, your company, your production. Um, I think you just have to be 
straight straight to the point. There's there shouldn't be any hesitation to make to let people know what the concerns are because oh things that could be uh, what that could be an incident waiting to happen could uh, affect the entire uh, entity. So just let people know. Be straight to the point. Let let them know what the circumstances are and what the possible outcomes are if certain actions aren't done. So. Just no, don't hesitate about it. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. There's no failure here. We never have failure. No. Um, so a lot of times, it, it, it depends on the scale of the failure uh, and where you are. You're usually going to be ending up to fill out some sort of form because a lot of it's going to be through some sort of tracking, especially in like an office uh, setting or anything like that. If it's super critical and yelling at the high rafters isn't, it probably is not the best way to do that. But basically, just note everything that's going on and uh, bring all that information with you when you go to to the top to say this needs to be replaced absolutely right now. Um, and then uh, they have, you know, if, if you've collected all the facts to show that that's going to fail in the next twenty four hours, forty eight hours, for example then uh, they, they have to listen to you. And if they don't listen to you, then you have a fully documented uh, list of what you did to make sure that this wasn't going to fail and then they just let it happen. Good, Bill. Yeah, and, and I'm going to concentrate, Douglas, on the last word you use here, which is diplomatically, because this is a big thing. I, pointing out problems is part of every crew person's job. If you see something that can really damage the production, you have a responsibility to bring it to people the, the next level up or even higher than that if it's actually something that's safety oriented or something like that. But what I wanted to be careful to just mention is that if you're the person who's always looking for what's wrong and that's all you're ever talking about is I found this error or this error or this could go wrong or this could go wrong, that has a negative effect on how people kind of perceive you as a part of the set community. And so just be gentle about it. Try to balance the things you find that are wrong, which are important with things that you praise that are right so that you have a pretty balanced approach to that and people don't think you're just the person who's crying wolf. Go, Jason. Tact is the ability to make a point without making an enemy. So in this case, I think instead of diplomatically, it should be tactfully. I would simply say, look, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least point this out. And the judgment comes in to um, who you tell and when, not when they're extremely stressed out, worried about something else. Uh, and yeah, just keep a, keep a mental note of your ratio. If you're always that guy, then you're remiss too often. I do everything I can to solve the problem invisibly. <laughs> so if I see it happening, I do, what can I do to not have that happen? The second thing I do is I'll go to the person who's working on that and start asking them questions. The goal is to ask questions so that they see the problem without me telling them that there's a problem. Just like, hey, how is this working? And what is this going to do? And how is this going to go over there? And suddenly, you know, it might dawn on them. <laughs> and the, the, the third thing is to talk to them about it if, I, if that didn't work. And then you go to someone who might be at, at a different level. But the mistake most people make is they go straight to somebody else um, or they just start telling people what to do. And to get back to the diplomatic and tactfully, you have to draw that out very, very carefully, especially in a corporate environment. Um, uh, you know, People will see it as attacking you and then they will want to get rid of you. <laughs> like, you know, like, so especially if they feel like, and I've done it, I've definitely done, done that where they I may upset a lot of people by just saying that isn't working. Um, so I've learned to be more tactful. Next question. 
Paul Walhoofs in Austin, Texas, writes in, What's the most, what are the most consecutive hours you have on any piece of gear? Do you pay attention to this? Bill, quick. And I've got a weird answer, but yeah, I was thinking, what do I use the most now? And would I have used the most earlier in my career? And you know what it came down to? My Apple Watch. And, and it's a weird thing, but because I, I started out with it not having anything to do with my business, but then I found more and more. And between being able to time spots and being able to just the, the myriad of things that it does, including communications, both uh, when things are normally going, checking email, checking messages, checking texts and things like that, but also uh, quick communications in circumstances where something's going wrong and somebody that I love knows about it and says, hey, this thing is going wrong over here. Um, that has turned out to be the thing I probably spend the most hours interacting with every single day of my life now. It's been weird. Here you go, ahead, Jason, real quick. Depends on the piece of gear. Um, instead of counting in hours, you can always go with shutter count. I have more than once rolled entirely um, the the total shutter count of a, a Canon full frame DSLR, and um, yeah, at least one of them had no incident even after it was corrected. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand writes in, is there any uh, office hours, after hours interest in Superbooth 2023? I'd love to hear what happened. I think it just happened. I think it happened last week, I believe. Superbooth, for those listening, is a for uh, high-end um, or just lots and lots of manufacturers for synthesizers and, and Eurorack and all kinds of other things. It's like probably the biggest conference in the world uh, for that. I think it'd be really, it'd be fun to cover in more detail. So hopefully next year. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, writes in, Alex is working on his portable remote kit for the Insta360 Link cameras. How will these cameras be controlled remotely? My Insta360 control is quite sensitive for my local Mac and not ready for prime time. Yeah, the um, I, it's funny because I don't find mine to be overly sensitive from a screen sharing perspective. I can just simply go in there and move where I want it to go. Maybe I've just gotten used to it, but I'm not trying to use the controls. I use the, you can click on the image and just move it to where you want it. I click on this and I move it down and it just moves the, it just moves the thing. It's very, very uh, uh, seamless. There's two different ways that we can control it. Um, the mini kit that I'm sending out is going to have a Mac mini with screen sharing. So basically I can just go into the Mac mini and grab onto that control of those, of those uh, cameras and adjust them there. So that's one way that I'm doing it. And basically one of the things I'm working on is putting a, um, it's a it's a little HDMI that just tells the computer that it's got a second screen, even though it you know so just like a little loop, and you just put it in and it'll it'll tell that it's got a second screen. That way, it'll, that Mac Mini will create two screens, and so I can have a screen that is, you know, that's going that's going to be the the zoom that they're looking at, and another screen that's kind of a work area. Um, so that's kind of what I'm working on there. Uh, so you can either screen capture in and move those cameras around. One of the things I think is going to be important for a mini kit like this is. Uh, pre presetting most of the positions that I want. So I want the stove or I want the thing or I want the table or I want other things like that. And then the um, and then finally you can control it via Zoom over through the Zoom room. You can request control of those cameras and control them remotely. And so uh, we don't expect to like we're not going to be doing pan and pans during the shot. We're just trying to get to new things. Um, you know, and and again, it'll probably be something that we rehearse. We figure out where it needs to be, and then we have presets for that. So during a show, we wouldn't have to do that. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, that would that would kind of scare me to have uh, have something like an Instalink that all of a sudden fail during the show. Of course, any camera can fail during a, mm -hmm. during a show, but uh, to have one that all of a sudden starts to turn around and, and show the backside, uh, that would that would 
that would kind of scare me. I'm assuming you're going to have something uh, like a like a Brio on the standby just in case, right? Nope. Um, uh, what I what I, um, I I think is that I have not seen that happen <laughs> with, the, with the camera. So 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 I, I haven't experienced that with the Insta 360. I, when it loses when it loses contact, it just stops moving. Um, I don't see it actually do anything other than the very beginning when it does a reset. So yeah, we're going to send out four of those. Uh, if it turns around in the kit that I'm building, all it'll see is black because the the main camera uh, is inside of a inside of a cover that sits behind a screen. So it's not going to. There's no way for you to. It's not going to be able to see anything behind it. It only sees what's in front of it. If it starts turning, it's just going to go black. Um, next question. Robin Cutshaw writes in from Atlanta, Georgia. The X32 rack has a MIDI interface. Do you use this mainly for control, or can you plug musical instruments to it and use for the MIDI interface to your computer? Go, Jason. Yeah, it's uh, it's for control. I go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, well, as Jason Jason mentioned, that's for control. Um, uh, I know of people that have used um, drum pads to to recall recall um, snippets or scenes for say uh, um, for theater. And also, some people use uh, foot pedal MIDI controllers to say kill uh, reverb uh, during while a musician is speaking instead of uh, singing or performing. Next question. Edwin R. Ruiz writes in from Chicago. What is the best practice for transforming a Resolve 18 database from an old MacBook Pro to a Mac Studio? Database is backed up already. I don't know what the best practice is. I mean, typically you should be able to just move it. I mean, it should be self-contained. That that folder doesn't shouldn't have any extraneous um, pieces. So you should just be able to just drag and drop it from one place to the other. The one thing I will say is that oftentimes I I try to keep those on. I try to keep the databases and pretty much anything specific to the app um, when I'm in production, trying to keep it on a separate drive. So it just kind of moves. So I just move the drive with it. So try to think about whether when you're doing this move, try to not move it from a Mac Pro to a Mac Studio, try to move it from a Mac Pro to an external drive. <laughs> and then you're going to put stuff on. Um, it's, it's better to keep it all self-contained. And I keep that with my media and I keep it on a RAID or I keep it on a bunch of other things and so that so that I have all the stuff that I need there. Um, now, you may want to separate those into two, but I would still have it as an external drive so you don't have to think about this. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, Nick mentioned a dozen Unreal engines during his discussion of virtual production yesterday. Could you virtualize the engine to reduce power and cooling needs? Uh, go ahead, Mickey. Uh, yeah, I I would imagine if um if your virtualization solution uh allows direct to metal access to the GPU, uh, you can theoretically uh, virtualize the multiple instances. Though it's also good to point out that depending on the scale, virtualization might not necessarily lessen lessen the uh, cooling and power usage. Go, Jason. Well, and for a little bit of context here, Nick was referring to failover. Um, that that's that was the point. In which case, I, I think virtualization is eh, probably not ideal. I think he, I think about half of those computers were failover potentially. Um, generally, if you're working in, if you're working with fairly simple geometry, you probably could do this. Uh, if you're working with anything complex, the reason that you're putting them on separate computers is because you're putting you're throwing GPUs at it. Um, to render it out in real time. So especially in broadcast, and typically they would probably want all of those machines to be separate, um, separate for the backup, separate for the for you know, and, and they're not worried about the power. Like just, I mean, just, you know, like they're not, like if they're, they're compared to many other things that they're doing, uh, the power that those PCs are going to take up is minuscule. So, so I, I don't think that they're, they're that worried about, about that process. Um, we've had ones where we have, you know, four PC, a PC with four GPUs in it um, to do the rendering. 
And um, now we did, I will admit, in Vegas outside, we did have air conditioning just for those units. <laughs> but but uh, but we but power wasn't the the biggest problem that we had. Uh, next question. Paul Walhoof's in Austin, Texas, writes in: What are some great mics for an iPhone? Samsung, Android. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. So it really depends on what you're going to be uh, doing with this uh, wired mics over wireless mics every single time. Uh, the Shure MV7, perfect exam is a, a perfect microphone. They have the app that uh, allows you to do some sort of control with your microphone. A dynamic microphone will always work for uh, like a podcast, but if you're doing something that needs a little bit more sound uh, on there, uh, there are microphones that are also USB that uh, you can definitely get uh, the road coming out with. They have the new pod mic USB and then their their cardioid microphone. I can't remember the, the number on it. It's also going to be a hybrid microphone that you can use and you can plug directly into the phone if you need to get something with more ASMR or something like that into it. Uh, but uh, that's just USB. Uh, of course, you can change the gamut if you put a mixer into it and use XLR microphones. All right, go ahead, Bill. Well, I, I took this as as written mics for an iPhone, which means you're going to be dealing with lightning traditionally, although as everybody understands now, Apple appears to be pivoting toward USB-C as their connector because of the whole European Union process. So I think if you're going to buy something now for a, a mic with lightning, uh, the big ones that I see after doing a little bit of research, the Shure MV88 seems to be pretty popular, as are the Zoom IQ6 and the Rode SC6. Um, those are things that you can plug directly into the lightning port and they will work with your iPhone if it's lightning connected. As we move to USB-C, there's going to be a huge variety of things because that's a different connection circumstance. And as uh, Jason just mentioned, I'm sorry, as uh, um, Jeffrey just mentioned, there's um, interfaces you can get. For example, Alex and I have talked about the Ceramonic uh, lightning connected XLR inputs. If you get one of those, you can use virtually any mic on the planet. It also has phantom power and allows for dynamics to work as well. I go, Jason. Yeah, and of course, just to reiterate, any class-compliant USB-C device, which of course is not an iPhone yet, will work. Um, but the um, the iRig Pro is the one that I historically I've used with pretty good success. I think it takes a 9-volt battery, and yeah, it's not amazing, but pretty good. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I just... I was uh, gonna say what uh, what Jason mentioned that class compliant the USB audio interfaces will work with uh, both um, iPhones and uh, i uh, sorry iOS and also iPad OS and I've played around with multi tracking and um, GarageBand for uh, for the iPad and have done I think um, I've I, I've filled up an eight a Focusrite eighteen i twenty and it recorded without a hitch. Yeah, the, the one that, that I use the most is, is what Bill was talking about. This is the Ceramonic, and it has a quarter 20 on the back so that you can attach it to a, to something, you know, like a small rig that might be on your phone. Uh, and lightning on the way in, 9-volt battery. Um, this is a great little box. Uh, you can, of course, put just about anything into it. If you, if, you have a, if you go lightning and then you have a lightning power to USB, that USB now can connect to just a, a wide variety, as Mickey said, of anything out there. So you need that little lightning to USB, but it's lightning to USB with lightning it's because that way you can power the phone. And then from that, uh, we've, we've connected mixed uh, our uh, USB pre twos <laughs> to, our, to our as an interface, but this one's been really nice. What we do with this one typically is we throw it on a rig, and then I have uh, this is two mics, and we we uh, put two electrosonic receivers uh, on the rig, 
So we'll hang it on the rig and then feed those into that. And then we have a wireless connection to the to either mics with mic plugs or, or labs or whatever else we're using there. Uh, next question. Steve Bauer in Seattle would like to know, Alex, what remote desktop software do you use to access and control the Mac minis that you include in your kits? Uh, we have AnyDesk on the computers to get into it, but then we use AnyDesk to get into Apple Remote Desktop. <laughs> so so we, we we prefer Apple Remote Desktop. It has the most number of features that we want. And so because we're using Mac minis, uh, that's the easiest way to do that. So um, so, But sometimes we have a little bit of a, a juncture problem, you know, transversing the network to get to it. So we find that if we have AnyDesk there, we can turn on the VPN if we need to or do other things that are necessary inside of that. If we, if the Mac Mini doesn't have a, doesn't have the VPN, doesn't need one, uh, or doesn't, sometimes what we have is a Meraki that's in the box. And so the Meraki provides the VPN to the, to the computer. And in that, in those cases, we generally don't need the VPN to be turned on, but for Mac Minis without a Meraki box, then we need um, you know these little MX3s or whatever, uh, or Z3s. Um, you need to have something that you can get to on it, and then you can turn it on, and then you can turn the VPN on, and then we can turn the Apple Remote Desktop on. Go ahead, Jason. And um, you know, it, just to give you a few more options, in a dirty pinch, uh, Zoom Desktop Control will absolutely pretty much get you there. The the, the trick is getting getting turning it when you turn it on it has to call home and you have to get to it without zoom. right like that's the, the, the it's that first step that we're that we're always working on so any desk can have it set up so that there's just a i just type in something and if it's on it's going to come up and then and then we go from there um next question paul walhus writes in what's the one audio product you look forward to seeing there's so many <laughs> usually uh usually i i uh it, i'm always looking forward to if, if you're talking about releases i'm always looking forward to whatever sound devices does next uh usually i'm pretty excited about their products um, next question edwin r ruiz writes in from chicago i'm finding the samsung t5 drive to be less available at stores and now looking for new storage options for my production uh black magic uh cinema camera 6s yeah go ahead uh, mickey yeah my um my Recommendation is still uh, sticking with uh, CFast cards. Um, I'm not a big fan of using uh, USB-C drives at non-locking USB-C with non-locking USB-C cables um, for your production um, camera storage uh, uh, needs. Um, but aside from that, if you're uh, locked into using an external hard drive or external SSD, um, I'm seeing more and more of the uh, SanDisk um, ProBlade SSDs being used. Go ahead, Jason. OWC makes a USB-C enclosure that when paired with their drive or even a less expensive drive is extremely rock solid. I completely agree with Mickey that you always want another card in there for backup, for failover, um, because, yeah, USB-C can be completely problematic. That said, uh, yeah, I've, I've yet to be uh, disappointed by OWC. Yeah, I, I build my own with MVMEs, so I build these um, when I'm not using the T5s. The T5s, the problem with the T5s is they, the, the small rigs that I got have a T5 slot in them, so I still use a lot of the T5s for that because there's already a slot built into it. But I, but I also build these. Uh, this one I built with a fan <laughs> so, uh, so that it, it, can, um, it can reserve heat if I'm pushing a lot of data at it. And they've worked pretty well um, for a variety of the Blackmagic cameras. 
it is, uh, you know, I agree that you always want to see fast. The real problem that I have with see fast is they're so expensive. So I have a couple see fast that I always have in there. I have one in there and I, and I will record to that, especially if it matters. Um, but for a lot of things that I have, I still use it because a lot of times it's just a matter of how much data am I going through. Um, but I always have a CFAST card in the, in the camera, but I don't always use it. Um, I don't always use that because of, just because of the, the cost. Yeah, Bill. This is uh, the OWC version of the NVMe drive with USB-C, and I've been using it almost exclusively now for quick backups as I do these long work sessions. It's really super fast, and it's very affordable, and it's been rock solid. So it's I'm kind of splitting the difference between where Mickey was and where Jason was. Next, next question. James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, have you thought about creating a Stream Deck Plus plugin to use encoder dials to control phase plan? I think this is, this, this is Yep, sorry. We'll That's that what popped back. up. Yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go to the next question. All right, Ben, we'll uh, yep, there we go. Ben Woodward writes in from New Glarus, Wisconsin. When recording audio, is, is it recommended to use digital audio recorded on a computer or is the USB out on the front of a Behringer or X32 as capable? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I've done many recordings using the, the USB out. I've done multi-track recordings using, and these are, you know, we're talking Behringers from five, six years ago. So even uh, the newest, uh, newer ones, you should be able to uh, get something out of it. Uh, the quality, I'm not sure what bit rate, uh, rate you can get off of that. It's been a while since I've done that, but uh, I know you can at least get 24-bit out of it. Yeah, my recommendation is always to try to record in two places. So I would record to the USB there. And then if you have a Dante card connected to that uh, X32, you can use a program called um, like Boom Recorder. Boom Recorder is a Dante bay. It'll take a Dante input and just record all the tracks for you. So um, you can route those all. So having two different ways are, that you're recording all of those. And then, of course, the next step up from that, if you want to add a rack, is a Joko. And we have one of those in a Joko. You can just route I think it's 64 channels to it and then just hit record and it's going to record it to a USB drive. And uh, we've been using Joko's for uh, a long time. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mickey. Yeah, the um, USB uh, recording capabilities right on the front of, front panel of the X32s, uh, I believe are just limited to two tracks. So uh, if that's uh, enough for your needs, then uh, I don't see a downside to it. It should be able to record the... Uh, um, uh, 44 1 or 48 kilohertz, whatever um, uh, sample rate your desk is set to. Uh, but yeah, a standalone recorder would be um, would be ideal, especially in terms of stability. But uh, DAW, especially on a, a uh, appropriately configured computer, um, ideally with um, hardware DSP capabilities, would um, that that's running a DAW should should also be a good solution. Good, uh, Bill. I'm sorry. Next question. I just threw it at Bill. I just threw a ball at Bill. And he's like, what am I talking about? What, what am I answering? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Rob, Robin Cutshaw writes in, I plugged a Shure MV7 into an, X, uh, an X32 via XLR, even turning up the gain to full on the input. The mic is low. Does it need a preamp? Go, Bill. Yes, that's, that's, that's symptom number one. If you're turning it up all the way and it's still not loud enough, you need some sort of amplification stage in there. Generally, I think the MV7 and mics in that kind of class uh, are said to need at least 60 dB of clean gain beforehand. There are devices you can use to boost it, but generally they tend to be noisy. So I would find somewhere in your chain to get enough amplification, pre-amplification really, to get that mic level up to being a usable signal cleanly. Go, Jason. 
Although I've never done this with an MV7, my immediate thought is something's not right here. If it's really, really low, yes, it's a dynamic mic. Yes, it needs a lot of gain. But uh, I mean, just clear your channel and like be dead sure that, that, that's, that you really can't power that mic. Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, yeah, I think um, it it would it would help if you uh, if uh, you uh, specify what uh, low means when you say mic is low, because um, if you're trying to aim uh, broadcast levels, especially broadcast to web levels, which are super loud, um, you would need a significant amount of gain, uh, not necessarily just on your um, head amp, your preamp, um, but also gain added further down the line uh, after your compression stages. Um, uh, you, you usually, for broadcast, you'd have multiple stages of, co of compression, each one with makeup gain, and uh, that would get you to an appropriate level for broadcast. So having context of what, uh, what low means and what your goals are in terms of your uh, levels uh, may, may, may uh allow us to answer the, the question more uh, appropriately. Our next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia writes in, have the Samsung T7 external drives improved? You know, I, I go ahead, Jason. In my very humble opinion, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for those listening, the problem with the T7 drives is there's a different cache in, in the T7 drives. And so the T5 drives have, the T5 and T7 have, different caching units inside of these Samsungs. I don't know why Samsung chose to do, use different ones. And the problem is, is that the T7 will, when connected to a camera and getting a lot of, um, and getting a lot of data will actually stall out. And so it's, that's why it wasn't certified for the Blackmagic cameras. Um, we do find that we can record a lot of things on it, but we see, have seen failures repeatedly uh, in, in long um, driving records. And so uh, we don't recommend T7s for any major major work. We, don't, we, we wouldn't put T7s into production. Uh, what we recommend is putting uh, you know, T5s into production and then using the T7s as backups. Um, they work fine that way. The one thing to note is at about, in the one terabyte versions at about 440 gigabytes, um, they will drop to almost zero as far as the transfer space. Um, so it, so if you're doing a long, a large transfer, you'll look at it and you say, oh, that's going to take 15 minutes. It's really going to take an hour. <laughs> so, so it's, and, and we think that it's heat related, um, you know, to these drives uh, or a cache related, but, but at some point, if you just start pulling those drives back to each other, they're going to, they're going to go for a while and then it's just going to fall off and uh, not be as useful. Uh, next question. Uh, Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand writes in thoughts on Marshall being sold to Swedish Cozound. You know, there's always that we constantly are seeing this, this churn. <laughs> so, so I guess that I don't have any strong opinions about it. I don't use a lot of Marshall equipment right now. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley also writes in, is anyone using a DaVinci Resolve on an M1 iPad? What is the experience like using it on the iPad? You know, I haven't done a production on the iPad yet, but I have played with it. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, it, I think that uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what the uptick is of the the iPad versions um, versus, uh, you know, the the iPad version, the Final Cut. Um, so so that I think that that is the thing that we have to, we're going to kind of see this kind of push back and forth uh, between Resolve and Final Cut. And they're really, what they're really vying for is not so much professionals that are doing high-end 
well, maybe Resolve is, but, but I think that what they're really vying for is the social media creator market and the educator market and the corporate markets. And that's what Final Cut and Resolve are going to aim for with those iPads uh, is that it gives you kind of a, a really nice uh, mobile solution to make, uh, make a lot of that work. All right. We are going to jump into our uh, second hour, and uh, we are. I'm just really excited to have uh, Pear Salbark and uh, Pear uh, Larson on on our show with us. Um, I just as a as a precursor, I I saw Faceplant. We've been trading emails. I think I've been trading emails with Kilohertz for maybe a year, year and a half, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get these guys on because because it. I saw it, and I, the the scene that I saw was a helicopter getting, you know, being, um, you know, there was a, there was an audio of a helicopter taking off and it was all done inside of this program called phase plant, which I had never heard. And I follow a lot of sound designers on Twitter. And so it was just someone, someone threw it up and I clicked on it. And then my mind just popped out of my head. <laughs> you know, like I was just like, what is going on here? And looking at the video of how it all gets placed, put together is just amazing. Um, and I opened it and I kind of didn't understand how it worked. And I was like, I'm not going to try to figure this out. I'm going to try to get them to come on the show and talk about what they were thinking, show us a little about how it works, and uh, and for all of us to learn together because it's just, I think it's just a groundbreaking app application. And I'm just really, really excited to have um, uh, have, have the, the folks from Kilo Hearts on today. So, uh, Pear and Pear, it's good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's, Can you tell uh, us a little bit about how did you, what what led up to, to Faceplant? Well, uh, we're here to talk about faceplant, but really it's sort of the sherry on top of a, a long stretch of work that we've done over the last 10 years. Um, we started out doing sort of smaller effects modules and then built up with uh, larger sort of host plugins that then utilize those modules inside. And then finally, uh, in 2019, we were ready to launch Faceplant, which builds upon that entire ecosystem of, of existing products. So it's, uh, it's uh, sort of an emergent system, if you will, where simple little building blocks make for uh, almost unlimited sound design possibilities where you can make some really, really complex sound design. And like you mentioned, the helicopter sound with, you know, uh, a bunch of different variables that you can that you can change over time to make it sound like it's landing or accelerating or whatever. Uh, I think maybe you saw uh, someone from Twitter uh, who who did that sound. And uh, there's a specific guy who does a lot of engine sounds and um, and stuff like that, and he makes it incredibly detailed. He can you know pinpoint the make of a car. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and so and what what were the what were the plugins as you built these these modules? What were they designed to run inside of? So how did this get? How did that begin? So yeah, so they're uh, all made for use in a DAW. Um, any anyone uh, mm-hmm. really? We support all all uh, all of the formats, but yeah, you typically our intention was for you to use them in music making. But since uh, the usages have grown a lot and we see more and more people in, in you know, TV and cinema and also in, in video game design and, and just general sound design using our products more and more because of the vast capabilities of like combinations uh, of these sort of simple modules, really. Um, and did you know that you were eventually going to pull them all together into one application? 
Yeah. That was definitely the goal from the start. So but it was eventually reached that point where we could like build the synthesizers and, and hold, have all those modules in there. And, mm-hmm. So the idea was basically to start with a, you know, just start with something that you could start selling and making money at while you, yeah. while you, and slowly build all the components and then, Absolutely. and then pull them all together. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was quite a journey. It took us like 10 years. And for the first seven of those, we were absolutely not profitable, profitable uh, until we then eventually <laughs> launched Faceplant and it was, uh, and everyone thought it was an overnight success, but you know, behind every, Overnight success. There's ten years of hard work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing there, though, is I, I, I'm certain that you learned things though about it that affected. If you had built the app all at one time, it probably wouldn't have been as useful. No, know? no, absolutely not. No. So yeah it, yeah, it was a great learning experience, and we're keeping we're we're you know we keep building at it. Uh, our goal is to make it even more competent in the future with. Uh, feature updates that are always free. So um, we're sort of building um, something that we hope people will find great usage for for many, many years to come. Are you able to show us the app? Are you yes, we are. Yeah, I would love, we, I think people are like, what are they talking about? So, mm-hmm. so I think we'll, we'll jump into, uh, jump into showing, showing the app here. Yeah, uh, one second. Is the screen sharing going? See, it's starting up. Nope, oh, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is now running inside Ableton Live. Um, but as Per mentioned, you can run it in uh, most DAWs, um, and it's sort of a modular system. Actually, when you open it up, it's completely blank like this. Um, and then you add what you need. So you usually add by start by adding a, um, an oscillator, and that you can immediately start playing that and it's polyphonic and it just works. And you can keep adding um, different um, uh, generator modules here. We got analog oscillators, uh, granular, which we just added in the last update. It's a granular engine, so you drop your sample in here and it'll play short snippets of it and break it down. That's very quiet. I'm not sure if we're hearing that. <laughs> Sounds good here on the side. Yeah, metal grinding. Maybe not the best demo sound there. I picked one at random. We've got a noise generator. we got wavetables. Um, and, uh, and can you explain loads. how the how the how each one of these work? Now, are they automatically stacking together as you add them here? Yeah, so they'll automatically route together. So you'll see on the side here, there's little arrows that sort of show how these get mixed together. Then they go through this amplitude envelope. Uh, you can adjust, and then they go out to the right part here, which are effects. So here you can add your. So you want to delay on that. This noise is probably loud. <laughs> uh, you can stack your effects here, and you can just keep adding as many as you like. And we have thirty something. And is there a from. limit to the number in each lane? And is the lane very? Is the lane kind of how? How do the what's the how do the lanes work with each other? Yeah. So the routing by default is that the generator section goes into lane one. Lane one goes into lane two. Lane two goes into lane three, and lane three goes out. To the master, 
But you why would you use system. why would you use multiple lanes as opposed to just stacking them up in lane one? Well, you could choose to start a different group here, so you have a different layer, and you right. can send that to lane two, for example, so it skips the effects in lane one. Or you can have both lane one and two go to lane three, so you can do different combinations like that. What parallel processing is it? It's um, yeah, so you can um, do some specific effects to certain layers of your sound. Yeah, exactly. And you can even send your generators straight to master uh, if you want. For example, if you have a sub layer that's uh, just a basic sine wave, you don't want a reverb on that. You just send that right. straight to the. So, so you can bypass all the layers or send them to specific layers and then mix the yeah. layers together as, as you go through it. It's great. Yes. Uh, and down here, you got your modulators. So if you want to, you an LFO or an envelope, just drop in as many as you like. Uh, we also have these curves, which are sort of envelopes, but more freeform. And you have a little editor where you can sort of... One, one of the things I really... I, I, I have to say that I... Um, one thing that I really like is the it's how pleasing the interface is. <laughs> so, so yeah, we really. I, I, I'm sure that you spent a lot of time on that. We did. We, we <laughs> did actually. It's it's probably the one thing that makes I wouldn't say the one best thing about it, but it was certainly the thing that turned our little you know our little corner of this market on its head uh, when we launched Faceplant because uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, software synthesizers out there available with a um, with sort of fixed architecture um, setup where you have two oscillators or two wavetables and a noise generator and then you have two filters and one LFO and whatnot and there's that's just you know the fixed architecture of that particular software synthesizer so making a, a an interface where you were able to add the pieces you want as you want them without many limitations is something that people really, really appreciate with this, uh, with this software. And I'm going to back up a little bit and have you just kind of describe, because some, some folks that are watching here aren't going to know exactly what, the, what just got all, all got added there. <laughs> so, so you start generally with an oscillator, right? That's generating the tone, yes. right? And, and, what, and how do you choose what oscillator that you're using? So let's start from a fresh slater. Mm -hmm. So... The analog oscillator is if you want to emulate an analog synth. Right. It has only a few waveforms. You have the sawtooth wave, square wave, triangle wave, sine wave. And it also has this sync feature where you can make it go like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, for the square wave, you also have the pulse, pulse width modulation kind of thing there. Um, these are great for if you want to use these types of waveform like very raw without many effects to them right you can get you know i want to say nintendo kind of kind of sounds very right. very basic like old-timey electronics yeah. type of sound right. um so or that's if you want to emulate uh, an analog synthesizer this is also a good place to start because you get this super crisp waveform mm -hmm. um as a starting point and then you add filters to it and distortions and whatever and the envelope is is the attenuation over time is that yes exactly mm -hmm. so if you want to make something like a piano uh, sound you would uh, have a pretty sharp attack at the beginning followed by a pretty uh, like slopey fall off uh, 
imitating the sound that a piano does where the most of the and, energy in the hit is in that initial now yeah. you just you just drag that so how did that what did that do right there when you yeah. when you drag from one to the next so what i did was i added a filter here in between the output envelope and the oscillator mm -hmm. and then i added another envelope down here a modulation envelope which is not connected to anything when you add it uh you can grab the value of it here and then everywhere this you can the, route that lights up this is what what so when i when i when i downloaded faceplant and put it on you know put it into my into my uh, daw when mm -hmm. i when i clicked on one of those and all those plus signals came up i realized you can yeah. use the output from almost any part of this right to affect some attenuate almost any other setting is that is that correct exactly, yeah. exactly. that's correct so um Again, this is also available in many soft synthesizers, but uh, probably I wouldn't say to this extent. Mm -hmm. um, many uh, other soft synths will have something called a modulation matrix, which is more like a an Excel sheet of which value is going to affect which other value in your right. sound. Um, but we wanted to do like inspired by. Uh, inspired by modular synthesis where like in hardware where you have cables going uh, yeah. back and forth to control these types of things we wanted to do something that was visual like that but didn't necessarily clutter your screen with too many cables so our cables only show up when you're interested in them like, yeah. when you like are you able to see them all somewhere is there a way to display them like hit a button and have uh, them all kind of show what up? what you'll see is that this knob is now orange meaning it's modulated by something Got and it. if i hover that all the modulation going into it appear under it. And if I hover them, you'll get this sort of line mm -hmm. showing that right. connection. So and no, you can also hover the source here and see. There is no way to see all of is that the a shadow? connections. That, I'm is, sorry? That a sh is that a shadow on the Yeah, camera? yeah, it yeah. is. <laughs> there is no way to see all the modulations at once because for a simple patch, that might be very useful, but people use the system to create some monstrosities in complexity where right. they have hundreds of these connections and showing them all on screen at once right. is going to be absolutely uh, uh, terrible <laughs> so so yeah so there's no way to, you you, you kind of have to explore uh the pieces for yourself so faceplant the main ui of faceplant was designed for people creating their own sort of soundscape or sound from scratch and uh and we wanted to give you like a clean slate to start with. So even though you can go extremely deep and become very, very complex, um, as long as you're the designer for this particular sound, you added each piece of complexity yourself. So you sort of have a bit of an understanding of how your sound works, uh, which makes it easier for you to navigate it. Uh, whereas many other synthesizers will have, they will show you all of their features on screen at once. Uh, yeah. Even if you're just using 10% of that for your sound, you're going to see all of those options and it's going to like cause a serious information overload. Um, so that's one of the key reasons that uh, Faceplant also looks like the way it does. But maybe we could load it one, uh, some, any like a, yeah. a particularly complex preset just to show you the depths that some people some of our sound designers go to i like to show uh, uh from the book of the dead uh that one uh, yeah like this one and then the it's also called book of the dead the preset so this is um this is um one of our uh, an artist that we work together with um 
called his name is Jake. He's called Kill the Noise. He's out of uh, LA, I think, mm-hmm. and he makes uh, sort of dubstep, very aggressive bass music. Mm-hmm. And this particular preset, as you can see, it has like hundreds of parts to it. But what he did here is he actually built not one instrument, but I guess six or seven different instruments in the same preset. And then when you play a single note, it'll 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 play you a full song. <laughs> so <laughs> shall we have a go? <laughs> yeah, let's listen to it. <laughs> Actually, the computer can barely handle it with the, all the streaming and everything oh, at the same time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> But that whole, it'll just keep on, it'll work through a whole song when it, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. it's a, yeah, it has a beat with drums and, and uh, layers and everything. Yeah, but if we want to show something more, uh, you know, useful, maybe the flute your phone. Yeah. Um, and do these come with, uh, with it or are these just examples that you have or does it come with very many presets? A, the one I'm about to load is part of the factory bank, so that's included. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one from the Book of the Dead, that's an, a sound bank that we sell on our site. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Okay. If you get the subscription, though, then you'll get all the sound banks as well. So let's hope this works better. Hmm. I'm not a good keyboardist, but <laughs> <laughs> I hope it came through. There was a nice flute sound there. No, it, uh, it definitely, definitely came through. No, yeah, and this is built up. So, so tell us yeah, a little bit about it, about what's happening here and what we're what we're looking at. Right. So yes. So this one uh, specific preset is made by Rob Swire from uh, I guess uh, Knife Party and Pendulum. Um, and what he did here is he wanted to make a natural sounding uh, instrument that is based on off of the most of those. Uh, uh, the analog generator that we told you about uh, early on. Right. So you can tell at the top there's that sine wave that is sort of the basis of this sound. Mm-hmm. It is followed by uh, a series of uh, uh, extra sine waves that are all set to uh, no volume. So they look like uh, they look like they um, they're just flat lines. But right. the thing is, he modulates them in in creative ways during playback. You see that those. So this gets uh, into the, they're they're there. They have zero. They have zero base setting, but they're then they're yeah. being then you're connecting yeah. them to the other. Yeah. Right. So they're depending on how you play your keyboard. They will uh, uh, increase in volume during playback in in creative ways that um, I couldn't explain exactly how we made it because it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. This one. Uh, but uh, he uses, as you can tell, there. Like, and so when you see that stack, when you see that stack next to the um, uh, next to the sine wave at the bottom, those are all right. different connections. It's connected to those all. Are all so, different connections. so that one, that one envelope is, or LFO, is it an LFO? Um, yeah, yeah, it's an LFO. Is is, <laughs> mean, is is running a bunch of other things. Uh huh. So it's opening and closing a filter, and then it's also uh, slightly detuning all of those silent uh analog generators and also like affecting their uh amplitude so i guess that's sort of where that little bit of vibrato feeling yes. to the to the flute comes in and there's also a feature we haven't really talked about yet which is fm just like i, I can take the modulation from this lfo and put it almost anywhere i can grab the output of an oscillator like this and route it 
And then the selection is a lot more limited where I can go with it, but I can take the output from this oscillator and route it into the face of this oscillator, for example, to create FM synthesis that okay. way. And that's... And that's frequency mod modulation. Right? Yeah, exactly. Those. And that's what, what this patch is doing a lot of. Uh, if you look at this oscillator here, it's a clean sine wave. But once I start playing... It distorts. This, yeah, the face of that sine wave is actually distorted, and that's where the overtones are coming from. It makes it sound like a flute. Mm -hmm. That's great. <laughs> and then <laughs> on your right-hand side, you can see that there are several uh, effects going on here. So there are a few filters. Uh, there's a little bit of distortion. And what's the eight voices? What's the ensemble? Ensemble is uh, it's almost like a chorus effect. Uh, where we multiply the incoming sound into eight copies, and then they, those copies are detuned and stereo spread uh, in an interesting fashion, uh, and then mixed together so that you get sort of a, a weird stereo and um, and pitch movement yeah. throughout your sound. Yeah, whatever you feed into it, you sound like that's played. And, and in does unison, it, like many times. Yeah. And it, does it do have any uh, surround capabilities as uh, past uh, stereo? It's only stereo. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but yeah. Um, so, like you see, you can get very, very complex with this, but don't, right. don't let that intimidate you because um, it's actually really, really fun to just yeah. use, with, uh, like, uh, play around with uh, one or two generators and a few effects. And once you get comfortable with it, you start sort of in your mind uh, chunking these effect chains together and you start realizing what goes well together and how you want to work with it. And there are as many ways to work with it as there are people on the planet, I think, <laughs> because uh, uh, it, people make very personal sounds. Yeah, and I kind of like that. It's it's one of the more the most capable synthesizers on the market, yeah. but it also can be one of the simplest. Simplest if you just want one oscillator and a, and a delay. Yeah, right. That, and that's then that's all you see on the screen. You yeah. don't see the filter that you have bypassed and the distortion that you have bypassed and whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. just add all, all only the parts you need and then. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm. We have a bunch of questions stacking up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw oh, the questions. Nice. And if we've, if we've got a little time, we might come back and have you show, show a little bit more. Um, but uh -huh. let's go ahead and uh, open up to the, to the first question. Sure. James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota, wants to know, where do I best learn granular synth techniques? Uh, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you can start on our YouTube channel if you're, if you're going to use face plants. Mm -hmm. um, we have our... Demo guy George going through how the granular um, generator works in quite some detail, and then we also have we tend to collect other tutorials that other YouTubers make as well on our YouTube channel. We make playlists, yeah, so you can find other uh, other people's content on our on our page. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in: Do you know of any major artists using Phase Plant on stage? Um, for live performance, I mean, so here's the thing. When we started creating our ecosystem of plugins, we didn't have a specific genre in mind. We thought that if we are, you know, proudly digital, we don't enforce any kind of character on the sound on anyone, 
that should, you know, that should make everybody like us, right? Turns out <laughs> classic uh, rock and stuff, they really want, love that character in their sound. So, so what happened is that we quickly turned uh, into an audience of mostly uh, EDM and bass music and dubstep and stuff uh, where people are really, really interested in digital uh, artifacts and, and really mathematically clean processing. And for a long time, that was our uh, major market. And they tend not to play their instruments live on stage. They, you know, pre-program songs and then they uh, fiddle with the like performance related stuff like, I don't know, tweaking, tweaking things on stage rather than performing much. Um, so honestly, I don't know off the top of my head a major artist that performs live with faceplant but it uh, it is absolutely possible and if you're looking to try that i would really recommend you the the new uh controller from expressive e have you heard about the osmos it's a keyboard uh controller it's actually a synth as well but it works as a controller for faceplant so it's uh it, it looks like a piano but you can um, you can do some extended movements on it like you can bend the notes a little bit and you can do various things like that that, that works extremely well together with uh, faceplant and um, I I really think that we'll we will be seeing major name artists using faceplant in conjunction with this very very uh, cool new controller that came out what is it have like six months ago or something yeah. um, because it's it is extremely impressive when you hear someone who's uh, who's a good uh, keyboardist playing uh, faceplant on that thing. And and in the same way that that you can connect these two to each other, are you able to connect external MIDI to the yes. or an OSC to OSC? What's that? Uh, oh. Open Sound Control. All oh, right, uh, uh, MIDI MIDI um, yes. for for sure, uh, and then the new extended MIDI thing. Uh, mm -hmm. that is called MPE, that is per note expression, which I mentioned. Uh, yeah, for, for, sure. for Faceplant, it runs inside the DAW always. Right. There's no standalone version of it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. whatever MIDI the DAW sends it, it will just play. Mm -hmm. so. That's great. And it can be connected. Is it, is it, do you add it like a MIDI, like a generator, like what, something in here and then attach it to things? Is that how you get the MIDI controls? Uh, you basically just since it is um, um, DAW plugin uh, and yep. it's a synthesizer, the DAW you will just just pass it, hook it up to whatever you play playing automatically. Yes, that's great. So, Mostly just work out of the box. Uh, yeah, for the for the 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 sort of new thing is like I mentioned a few times already the MPE, which is where you can have more expression per note than on a regular MIDI keyboard. Yeah. So for instance, if you if, if you played a regular MIDI keyboard before, you know if you hit a chord and you then use the pitch bend uh, with your left hand, you're going to bend that entire chord, which might not sound great and might not be the thing you want to do. But these newer controllers can do those types of expressions for each note. Uh, that can be a little tricky to set up because most DAWs you haven't they haven't conformed on a on a like <laughs> protocol on how to set that up so it right. can take 
a little bit of time to figure it out depending on your doll. But as soon as you have your doll set up, uh, Faceplant will work out of the box with, with it. That's really cool. Uh, next question. James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, have you thought about creating a Stream Deck Plus plugin to use encoder dials to control phase plant controls? Are you familiar with the Stream Deck? No. Is it, is uh, yeah, I am. Um, the, no, we haven't. About, but I, and... Yeah, I know. Um, no, we haven't is the short answer, but mm. maybe we should. And um, I would have to like, spend some time investigating that because if there are um if there's a if there's a, a good like uh communications protocol that the steam deck uses that we could implement then i, I could absolutely absolutely see that as a really great tool for the i guess audio and and visual is, industry as well um, a lot of I us have a lot of them there also be some <laughs> thing where the daw could act as an intermediary uh, and like um, all these macro knobs here at the top of the screen are visible to the DAW, so they could be tweaked from from the right. DAW. Right. So if um, your stream they can control your DAW in any way, then it's probably already possible to set it up. Yes, exactly. That's great. Uh, next question. Paul Walhoofs in Austin, Texas, writes in: What are the user requirements for Faceplant? What skills and abilities make them most suited to get the most out of Faceplant? Right, so the user requirements would probably just be an interest in building your own sound because um, a lot of people will be very content uh, playing presets. And Faceplant provides a lot of presets, but so do many other synthesizers. So if you want, if you're looking to get Faceplant, I would say an interest in learning uh, sort of a little bit of the ins and outs of synthesis uh, would be would be ideal. If you're not looking, if you're not looking to understand how sound is constructed, uh, but rather just play it, there. I mean, Faceplant of course provides a lot of content for you, but the sort of the nitty gritty and the cool thing about it is, is that you can tweak and and um, and and create with it. So an interest in it is absolutely uh, a, a good thing to have. Um, that being said, it's also, I would, I would argue that it is easier to understand than many of our competitors. So playing with trial, trial and error is also much faster with all the drag and dropping, like easy copying of modules and stuff. So I, I think it's actually a pretty good learning tool if you're trying to get into it. We see that as well with many schools being very interested, like audio schools being very interested in in having uh, uh, our plugins in the in the classrooms, uh, especially since all of these little uh, audio effects that the effects that we put into these lanes are so they're sort of so uh, limited in their uh, what they do. They do exactly one thing what they're called and they do that well which is perfect for learning you know the basis of sound design um whereas uh, many other plugin companies will create a black box effect that does a bunch of everything and you don't really know there's knobs on it that says you know how much coolness do you want and that's not that's not a great learning tool if you understand that 
uh, how to use a gate specifically, and then you learn to use a reverb correctly, then you can make a gated reverb just by combining those two effects. And that's a much better learning experience than, than going for a tool that was specifically made for that very narrow niche. So, um, so yeah, I think it's both a good learning opportunity and also a great way of exploring the world of sound design if you're interested. Yeah, it seems like you could build a whole course on just sitting on top of this where you just go through different things and this is exactly how this works and this is how, are there, are there entire courses built around it? Yeah, yes, there are. And um, there are some of our, um, you know, advocates out there that we don't specifically work together with, but they offer uh, sound design courses through various platforms on YouTube and other places where you can um, you can you can go there like take their master class or you can uh, find various tutors to help you for a fee um, or you can just you know watch a lot of YouTube and do trial and error and learn for yourself yeah <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is your largest industry right now I think it's still actually uh, um, the sort of technologic, Mm -hmm. dance music if you will like drum yeah. and bass dubstep and stuff but uh close second would be probably uh, video game sound design yeah, um, yeah. so for the, we hear a lot of little tiny you know funny um stories lately so for instance there was an interview with one of the sound designers who worked on uh, well, this is actually a movie, but it's about a, a video game <laughs> about the Super Mario movie. The other day, there was an yeah. interview where um, one of the sound designers specifically mentioned kilohertz, one of our effects, and said that it was very, very useful for uh, making the sound where Mario hits the big mushrooms and boom, like bounces off them. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's little little snippets of trivia like that are yeah. always fun to hear. One early job for me was actually doing sound design for a game, and and um, oh. and and so I w one of the things I th I thought of really quickly when I saw that helicopter, and then I started playing with it, was specifically like I could see myself just sitting in here and just building, you know, building a lot of the effects um, that I would have done with. I did this thirty years ago, so it was a very yeah, very arduous yeah. process. But but <laughs> um, but this is a, this seems like it'd be a great place to just kind of build little components. Yep. And it's actually how we got into audio programming was that we worked on video games earlier. And then uh, when we started this company, we got a contract to make an audio processing tool for another video games company. Right. Uh, and that sort of started us into this audio processing mm -hmm. uh, yeah. quest. <laughs> yeah, I guess. We're also, uh, for this the 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 greater industry of making plugins for your DAW is a very diverse uh, business. There is a lot of free options for every plug. Like for every plug paid plugin, there is you know three free options, right. and uh, a lot of people that do this come from another angle uh, compared to us. So a lot of people are musicians. Uh, mm -hmm. First and foremost, and they see it, they lack a specific tool in their arsenal, right. so they think, "Well, I, I guess I'll just have to create it myself. I'll, I'll learn to program and I'll do something." 
Okay. And they start and they make a product and they launch it and they realize they can't charge very much for it because it's full of bugs and it's the UI is terrible <laughs> and they get a lot of into a lot of problems like that. So that sort of swamped the market. Right. Uh, so we come from the other end. The the three of us that started the company um, are definitely application developers by heart. And we sort of stumbled into audio almost by mistake. Um, and I think that it it gives us an edge in in that we can make bug-free and very complex uh, yeah. usable, uh, but still usable software. Right. Uh, and also, honestly, there's a little bit of an edge in not having the history of music production. <laughs> Let me right. explain that a little bit more. Uh, we're not sort of hindered by having like having preconceived ideas of how a compressor should work based on you know 80 years of hardware compressors conforming right. to the same standards. And we don't use the same interface. We use a screen. We don't use, you know, physical knobs. And there's so much that is different between hardware and software that it, we see some of our competitors just trying to constantly imitate popular hardware. And some of them do an awesome job of it, but that's not really where we want to go. We want to utilize the computer and the computer screen uh, as best we can. So that's why you can see a lot of more um, interaction on your screen in our plugins than in many in many others. You can see how the waveform deforms from FM synthesis. That's very difficult to visualize uh, on a on a on an analog synthesizer, for instance. Now, now, as app developers, why did you choose to do um, a plugin as opposed to building a standalone application that can just run on its own? Um, well, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, well, I guess it's just the, the easiest way to get something that makes noise <laughs> on your computer right. is to do it as a plugin because like the DAW does a lot of heavy lifting just to get that audio engine running and, and like um, right. coordinating all the tracks. Um, so actually like making a plugin is a, a kind of low barrier to entry way uh, to get something up and running. Do you have anything else but, you'd like to show us? Um, yeah, we can just mention maybe some of the other parts of the of the ecosystem other than Faceplant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to. So we got, uh, first of we can say that all these tiny little effects, you can place them in your DAW directly. You don't have to use them inside Faceplants. They are right. plugins in their own right. And uh, two of them are a little bit larger, um, multi-pass and snap heap. And you can also use them in faceplants, but typically I think you'd use them on your on the track in your DAW. Yeah, and you can think of these as multi-effects. Um, so they look similar to faceplant, but they don't have that sound generation section to them. They need uh, input audio. So this is, um, I don't know, maybe you used one uh, a multi-effect for your guitar uh, uh, at some point. This is similar. You sort of builds your effect chain uh, using the building blocks that were already already available. This one in particular is uh, a band splitter. So you split your incoming signal into 
up to five bands, and then you can apply any any effect to 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 certain parts of your sound. So yeah. if you want reverb on your high end and you want distortion on your low end, that's how you uh, that's how you do that within kilohertz. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. So if you want to build your um, multiband compressor, for example, you can do that in multibands. Yeah. And SnapHip is a little bit boiled down version of that where you have just stack uh, as many effects you like. Yeah. Um, this is very similar to a pedal board for a yeah. guitarist. What you can do is click that button and that makes those two lanes in parallel. So you can do parallel processing. So if you want a bit crush on here and the distortion on there, and then they will be mixed together before going on to the next yeah, lane so to the right. The and then that, um, the, the mix uh, dial at the bottom just decides how much how much there those those either that individual effect or the, uh, yeah, the overall so that, lane is, is yeah. So it's mix. for the overall lane. So if you go all the way to the left, these effects no longer do anything. Right, right. Uh, you just get the dry sound, and then all the way to the right. And you could. You could theoretically then, I mean, not theoretically, but you could you could affect that mix by another something else in the chain. So that can be yeah, yes, you can route to that mix. Drop a uh, say a audio follower in here and have the volume control the mix or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. So um, in all, it's a little bit like building with Legos. I yeah. often think of it. <laughs> Uh, you kind of um, use the pieces uh, as building blocks to get mm -hmm. to where you need to go. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We also have two EQs, which are kind of larger plugins, so they open up in a in their own window when you run in Faceplant. So this is Slice EQ, which is a parametric EQ, um, and actually, you can if I put an LFO here. I can actually modulate those filters. Um, so you can, yeah, right. Well. So you can, huh. and you could, you could um, basically expand and contract those equalization, you know, based on mm -hmm. some other input. Yeah. 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 Right. That's really so that's cool. a way to sort of, uh, you can build your own filters basically if you want to mm -hmm. emulate mm -hmm. a, a filter that has a certain character that's like more complex than just a low pass filter or high pass filter. Yeah, you can sort of build that as an EQ curve and then modulate the cutoffs and attenuate it with any any other output from any other piece of yep. the module. Yep. Yep. that's yep. really great. We got a couple more questions coming in. Let's go into the next yeah. question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael writes in: How do you use the sideband lane? Can you use it for side chaining? The sideband is uh, something I mentioned earlier that you can have several groups here in the generator section, and each group, rather each output module here, can send to a different lane. But they can also send to something called the sideband. Which is non-audible. Yes, so this you can't hear this, but in these effect units over here, you can pick that up. So if you add, say, um, compressor. a compressor, yeah, you can have the compressor as a sidechain input, and you can pick the sidechain Sideband side input as the sidechain input for the compressor. Um, so that's one way you can use it. There's also the ring mode, for example, which also has um, that kind of input. So it, 
the ring mod uh, multiplies two signals together. Uh, and the ring mod effect, it has its own oscillator um, inside it, but you can also say, don't use the internal oscillator, use the sideband instead uh, as the input. Right. And going back to the original question, I uh, I think there was a side question that can you use that to sidechain stuff? Uh, yes and no, because uh, most DAWs will have uh, a way for you to you um, to use the audio from one track to affect something on another track. Commonly effects like the compressor, which is you know the, the very most common way of thinking of side chaining. Uh, our little compressor unit is um, is available as standalone, like we mentioned before. You don't have to use it inside phase plan. So if you want to do a classic sidechain uh, setup in your DAW, you just add the compressor to your track, make sure that you are in your DAW, sending the correct information to that to that um, track where the compressor is on, and you well for uh, in in um, Ableton it looks like this. Um, in other DAWs, it might look different. One thing about this is that we would love to have audio input into Faceplant. So uh, DAWs you cla DAWs classically distinguish between instruments and effects. And some of them allow uh, audio input into instruments, others don't. So in some DAWs, you can't technically get the audio from one track to go into Faceplant on another track. So that's why it's not really possible at the moment to use uh, the side chaining feature from another track inside uh, Faceplant. However, kilohertz uh, have been around for a while by now, and our influence on the DAW makers is growing. So we're, we're you know, we are pushing them into uh, enabling these kinds of features. Uh, so it would be possible. Yeah. And we have, we have tried it out, and it does work in some DAWs. Yeah. So it's might, it might be that we add that feature to phase plans. Mm -hmm. And if you have two Either tracks way. with two different phase phase plant instances, and you know, doing two different things in that in those yeah. tracks. Can you, I know this will probably not work, but can you connect the output of, can you connect the output into the input of another, you know, the, the attenuate things between right. the two? That, that's what we were hoping would work. But in some DAWs, is, it would work. In some, it wouldn't. So yet. that's not the, I'm not talking about the sound. I'm talking about the actual settings. So oh, like take, modulation. Oh, right. Like the modulation. Uh, no. They can't talk to each other in that way. No, unfortunately. Sorry. That'd be mind blowing. <laughs> so, but so. however, you can set up many of the modulation sources can be tempo synced or like song position synced, and you can set up uh, yeah, identical right. modulators in both of the uh, instances to get. Oh, that same. would work. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, next question. Uh, James Foslin in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in: If you had uh, you had a live stream when introducing your granular synth update in the studio behind you, have you thought about having regular monthly streams to connect with your users? Yes, we have considered that. Yes, <laughs> that it, and uh, I wouldn't. I don't think it's going to be monthly, but it's going to be much more frequent than we have in the past. Yes, that's great. Uh, next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas, writes in: Is Phase Plant cross-platform, Mac, M1, Windows, Android, iOS, Linux, etc.? It's, it's uh, Windows and Mac 
and on Mac we support both Intel and M1 natively. Great. But have you, have you no seen Android, any no iOS specifically no with yeah specifically right. with uh, the the, sh- the shift from Intel to M1? We're tracking that. Did you see much of a performance shift with your software with uh, going to the M1 or going to the? Uh, it, it before we ported it to run natively on M1. It already r- ran really well on those processors through Rosetta, mm-hmm. um, like that piece of software that emulates an Intel on an M1 is quite impressive. Um, but still, we ported it, so it runs a natively on M1, got a small performance boost out of that as well. So, yeah, um, um, Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, can the pitch tracker send out MIDI? Uh, what would you recommend to convert audio to MIDI in real time? Um, I can't say I can recommend anything because I don't know enough, but uh, our pitch tracker cannot output MIDI, unfortunately. It outputs these modulation signals, so you can route it to anything inside Faceplant or inside Multipass, but you can't send it out as MIDI, unfortunately. Yeah. Ne- next question. Todd Reynolds writes in, uh, can you play us your absolute favorite presets that have been created for Faceplant? Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Well, we play the flutophone. That's, I think, my all-time yeah. favorite. And that's been in the synthesizer since uh, day one. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Uh, what else? Is that just a beta, a beta tester that just put it together and sent it back to you going, hey, this is what I did? Uh, no, actually, we commissioned a few uh, uh, people around, uh, for the factory content that we wanted to have included. And That's Rob Swire is one of the uh, more famous ones, actually. Yeah. Mm. But what do we have? We have um, a quite like this one, because I made it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Are we... It's, it, yeah. The screen sharing is the screen sharing is killing the computers. Yeah, can't, <laughs> can't play the that's computer. very unfortunate. We should have gotten a better computer yeah. for this demo. That, <laughs> but the, well, this, this is a good, uh, good intro to your live is there's a, you know, the upside to that is that there's a ten day absolutely free trial with no credit card needed or anything if you want to try it out for yourself. And what's the cost of Faceplant? Faceplant is one ninety nine. Uh, and that includes the synth and most of the effects. I'm gonna like add that little uh, reminder in there that anything in this column, the premium effects and the effects host, these ones cost a little extra. But there's a bundled price as well if you want to get all of it. And then there's a very affordable sort of rent-to-own option uh, where you immediately get access to everything, including all of the, you know very many content banks that some that are uh, and yeah so so there's a so that you can buy it you can buy it outright or you can subscribe yeah. and what's the subscription cost so the subscription cost is uh 9.99 a month mm-hmm. and then for every 12 months you subscribe you actually get a hundred dollar uh, sort of store credit voucher back so that means after a couple of years you'll be able to buy all of the parts of the system that you're using uh, or, or, you know, that you want. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a payment plan. It's in really interesting. I've never, I've not seen anybody do that before. So, so well, you can, we, were, we launched it together with Faceplan in 2019. And I'm sure you're aware that in the audio industry, a lot of companies have tried and sort of have, failed had some failures <laughs> with subscription plans. 
So the fact that I can count the number of complaints we've had with our subscription plan on one hand, and that's yeah. not a lie, makes me very happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it definitely sees like you can see how it, it makes it nice and easy to get into it, but you're mm -hmm. still building up a credit towards you could just yeah, own yeah. it, you know, down the road. We don't, we don't try to force people into the subscription either. If they just want to get the regular old perpetual license, that's Absolutely. totally fine. Mm -hmm. And we see a bit about 50 50 split, I think, yeah. between people who choose mm -hmm. their subscription or the. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say that one option is better than the other, and that's not the intention. The intention is that uh, we want our software in the hands of as many people as possible. And we quickly realized that a lot of our audience is very young, like right. ages 15 and up, uh, and they don't have $3.99 to spend on a, on a full bundle of software. Yeah. <laughs> or they have to ask their mom and... And for the ten dollars a month, understand. and for the ten dollars <laughs> a month, they have they get everything right. That's like all yeah, the things yeah. that you have there, mm -hmm. all the things, and and all the content banks and stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, next question. Yeah, I love seeing innovation when it comes to that kind of setup. Uh, Paul Wallhouse writes in, "What have the reviews and feedback been from users? Uh, what do you like most, and what do they want to see improved?" Right. Everyone wants a multi-sampler, yeah. which is a feature we do not have. We have a sampler. You can load one sample into it. And of course, you can have several sample samplers and stack them. But we can't do that thing where you like assign a single sample to each key on the keyboard and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, That's a very common feature request. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of feature requests. We have a very active, active uh, Discord community. I think, I think you get into, you, you, there's a kind of the deep water here is that you have tinkerers working. I mean, this this yeah. app leads to tinkerers, you know, people yeah, who want to, to to tinker with everything and, and, it, and that's going to lead to the kind of person that's gonna think of, like I immediately thought, oh, I wanna tie this to another track and I wanna tie this uh -huh. over here. And, yeah, and right. so that's just the way that you're, the, the mind works that would use this, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, yeah, because of the, the, uh, the feeling that you get when you use it, that I can add just another module, makes you immediately think that, oh, I can invent one of these modules. I can, there's this thing that, that they never thought of. Um, so yeah, like you say, it, it leads your imagination, like, you go wild. <laughs> we also have a very active uh, Discord community. Uh, if you're, you're familiar with Discord, we have oh, many yeah. thousands of <laughs> users <laughs> there. And we have a, a, a lot of discussion every day, which is, it, it's great. And it's a perfect way for us to interact with our customers. Um, we, we spend a, a bit of time there every day. And the feature request channel on that Discord is very long. I don't think anyone <laughs> could read it at all, <laughs> even if they wanted to. Yeah. Uh, That's great. <laughs> we also have the thing whenever we put limits on anything, like how slow uh, an LFO can be or something, people always complain. They like, can't you just... like between yeah. zero and infinity or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, one, one more question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, would you ever think of making a dedicated hardware product? Probably not, because we're not very good at it. Um, it's hard. It's hard. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. love software. That's that's where we're comfortable. Yeah, and we, we also love working with people who make great hardware. Uh, like I already mentioned the, the Osmos, but uh, I mean, 
there are great controllers available for software. What do you think are the best controllers for, for what you're doing? Well, absolutely that one. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, other than that, uh, there's something really co cool called the Linstrument by Roger oh, yeah. Lin. The uh, Linstrument ties into this? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It works perfectly with uh, Pistplant. Yeah. yeah, it's my daily driver actually while yeah. I'm <laughs> developing and, and like. Yeah. Yeah, so I have it on my desk at all times. Uh, it works really well with the pitch band and the pressure sensitivity. Yeah. Oh, That's very really cool. So those would be my top two picks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for your time. Really oh, appreciate you. you coming to join us. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited about the software. I think that, you know, usually what happens is, is that we do a second hour like this, and then we're going to try to probably to pull you back in to do a lab with us at some point. People, a bunch of people will start to play with it, and uh, we'll see if we can all all play with it together. I think that, again, we'll, a bunch of us, I'm sure, will be looking at uh, the Discord, your Discord, uh, to add mm -hmm. to the Discord that we already have here. Um, yeah. So we're, we're very, really, really excited. So, um, so really, nice. thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks Hi. to the panelists, um, the uh, you know for for being here and answering all the questions in the first hour. Can't do it without you. Uh, thanks to the producers who asked all the questions, and uh, and that was a lot of great questions. Dro dro drove our conversation forward. And thanks to the incredible crew. There's a small village that lights up every day to run this show. So all the edits, the development, the processing, everything all gets done. There's there's a development team. There's management teams. There's there are live teams and. All of them are necessary to get this off every day, seven days a week. So we really appreciate the work that you do. Um, we traveled uh, 75,000 miles today in our questions, 121,000 kilometers, and uh, 597 bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Thanks, guys. Great job, guys. That was really good. Nicely done. So Douglas, Douglas Carmichael, kill the noise is a pretty big deal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, I try not to open it up because it just hours disappear. Every time I, every time I, it's like a, it's like a teleporter. It's so pretty. It's oh, so I, pretty. I opened it up. I think I lost an entire Saturday. Like I just, it was just like, I opened up right after, after office hours and then it was like dinner time. And I was like, what happened? What happened? It's like, what does an oscilloscope look like when it's the prettiest thing ever? Ever.